RadioInfluence.com. The future is now. We have a whole smorgasbord of fast food in front of us. Let's dive into another episode of Rush the Field. Scott Zadenberg here alongside Chris Landry, veteran coach, scout, and consultant. Of course, the website LandryFootball.com. And that's right. Who says Clemson are the only ones who can have the fast food feast at the White House? Right, Chris? Yeah, I was about to say, what'd you do? You just uh, get the invite there and uh, did you down uh, the, the pizza, the Big Mac and the Whopper uh, along with the, the fries? Is that what you did? You know, I, I think <laughs> if I think if Alabama had played uh, Clemson after that big meal, they might have had a much better chance. I wonder if Alabama <laughs> accepted the invitation to the White House. Would Nick Saban be OK with his kids eating that type of food or would he be more strict know. about their dietary restrictions? <laughs> Probably. I don't. I don't know, but uh, those, those guys were running at it like they were chasing Tua. I mean, they were just you know, they, were going at it. they were grabbing a whopper. I mean, some of them. Look, yeah, you gotta love food, college you know? kids and fast food. <laughs> yeah, it's free college kids and free food, Chris. Free, Not just free, fast food. free, food. free, yeah, food. free food. Uh, but this is our first episode of the off season, or what? More, what some people would call the off season. There's lots to go on throughout the course of the remainder of the year in college. College football and on this podcast starting this week we are going to begin our state of the program feature one school each week for the next 15 weeks leading up through spring practices spring games and then getting you ready for the 2019 season of course tonight's school is Syracuse the number 15 team in the nation we will get to them coming up in just a few minutes but Chris there's some news around the country on Monday it was the deadline for underclass to declare for the NFL draft. Of course, the biggest name of them all, Heisman Trophy winner Kyler Murray, who is deciding between baseball and football, declared for the NFL draft. He can still change his mind, but at least now his options are open, which is important because the deadline was Monday. Yeah, changing his mind is the optimal word because I think this has been the plan all along. It's been a ploy to create leverage or... Uh, should I say he has leverage with the ability to play two professional sports. And this is all what it's about. It's, uh, hey, if I don't get more money, baseball, Oakland A's, um, I, I'm I'm going to I'm going to go play football. And I don't think and I don't know. But from what I understand, the Oakland A's with their money ball history, I don't expect them to to pay huge money to try to keep them. Well, they already paid him four point six six. How much? Yeah, the reports that he wants fifteen. That's a little ridiculous. Yeah, they're not going to turn around and pay him that much money. I don't think. Um, From a football standpoint, you know, he wants to, you know, maybe look at that and see how that plays out, and still have the option. The reality is this, and I'll get on the on the weeks and days ahead. We'll we'll talk about it and take some players in the draft prospects as we're really getting heavy on that in LandryFootball.com. But Kyler is a talented, young, athletic quarterback that is not one of those sure things, you know, in my view, first-round caliber graded quarterback. Um, Some may have him graded there. I think he's not quite in that class, but I think he can be pretty good. I think having the, the option to do both will only help him from a baseball leverage standpoint. If he wants to get more money and, and there maybe are willing to give him a little bit, we'll see how that plays out. But I, I don't 
you know, from a standpoint of, you know, we're not talking about a guy that's going to be the first pick in the NFL draft. Um, that's not what type of player this guy is. And certainly you're not going to be willing to take, in my view, I would not take him in first, second, third, fourth round unless I was convinced that he was totally done with baseball. I think people have to understand that. It may be kind of fun to talk about, but you're not going to draft or you should not draft someone that's not committed to playing football, particularly at the quarterback position. You, you, you can't you know, play quarterback in the NFL and, hey, let's go play some baseball in the spring so I don't have to work out. That's not the way it works, and that's not the way it's going to work out. And so I think this will come to a head, and I think – I, you know, I hear some people in the media now, I was reading something today and, and boy, they're starting to pick up something I've said for weeks now. This was, a was you know, when he was thinking about it and all the talk was, sure, he's going to use that as a ploy, as, as a negotiation ploy. And I think that's exactly what it is. You know, when you think about it, and I'm trying to just go back in the history of top drafted baseball players, this kid was the ninth overall selection. And in recent history, Top nine picks, three years they're in the majors. They're fast-tracked. You know, he, he got the $4.66 million signing bonus. Lamar Jackson, by comparison, the final pick of the first round last year, got 4.75. So unless he thinks or knows that he's going in the first round, I'm not so sure this is the best financial decision for him, but maybe he does know something or maybe he will find out something in the coming weeks as we go through this draft process. Maybe if he commits to football and gives assurances that there will be some team out there that's going to take him in the first round because we do know he has immense talent on the football field. I just think, like you said, there has to be some assurances or guarantees that he's going to give up baseball and completely commit to football before you start laying out some big time dollars well yeah it's a chicken egg thing i mean he has to commit to playing football and not baseball and if if you're not then you're not going to take him that high and if you don't take him that high then he's probably not going to play football he'll probably play baseball so it's kind of a you know it is a game of chicken literally um you know of, of trying to figure out how this plays out but I personally have felt all along this is a negotiation ploy uh, headed by Scott Boris, his baseball agent, and I Mm -hmm. think this is where it's going. I think he's going to get as much as he can from the A's. um, And, 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 you know, I know he's got – I think he wants more. I don't know that that the $15 million is accurate. I I don't know. I just think he wants more. And this is a a ploy to get him more right now. And then, as you said, um, if he's as good as they think he is and taking him that high, he is a fast-track guy, probably two to three years. And then, my goodness, uh, that type of money, guaranteed, uh, is going to far surpass what he's going to make in pro football. So I felt all along that's kind of where it is now. I, you know, I know people said, oh, but he said he, that his dream is to play football. <laughs> he likes football more. Well, I mean, I, not, yeah, that's that's what to say now. Now, I, again, not um, I'm just going on the assumption that they took him as high as they did in baseball, that they feel that he's a fast track guy. Uh, I, I can't really, you know, account for how good a baseball player he is. I think he can be a good quarterback. I don't think he's as good as a lot of people think as a football player, but I think he can be a good one, and I think he can make a good career. So if he wants to play football, if he truly Mm -hmm. 
you know, likes baseball but loves football and wants to make a career at it, there's a spot for him. But you've got to know going in what it is that he's going to do. And then to me, then you can evaluate him and stack him on your board as it relates to his football ability without any regard for, hey, he's got the leverage to go play somewhere else, which to me, in and of itself, uh, I would not take him that high if because at that point you're wasting, potentially wasting Correct. a pick, somebody yeah. that you could have had that he can turn around even after he's drafted to say, I'm not signing, I'm playing baseball. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know what he can say other than I'm going to play football, I'm going to play football, I'm going to play football, look you in the eye, um, you know, if he decides after you draft them to play baseball, then you know he's not. You know what are you going to do? Say, oh, but but you said. Well, I mean, a lot of people say a lot of things. That's the way it is. So, I think this is kind of where it's headed, and I think this is a way to kind of you know leverage as much out of the baseball situation. We'll see how it plays out. Now, the the, the A's don't do it, and and uh, he gets drafted in the first round, and at that point he feels like, hey, I want to play football, and the A's don't. Come on, yeah. I mean, he could always decide football. I don't know what he's going to decide, but there's no question this is a leverage play, something that others don't have because not many can play two professional sports. Yeah, which this or this could wind up being a John Elway thing where he told the Colts that he was going to go play baseball. He was going to go play for the Yankees. And then what happens? He ends up being a Denver Bronco. So, you know, history was rewritten because of the threat to go play baseball uh, by John Elway there uh, back in the day. Well, Chris, uh, lots of underclassmen, not just Kyler Murray, are declaring for the NFL draft. When you look at the amount of players that have declared this year, how does it rank in recent years? Is this a heavy underclassman draft compared to previous seasons? Well, there's 96 that I've gotten the list thus far. Now, the paperwork on others may have been put in and haven't been processed based upon that. Uh, last year's number was 106. I would imagine it's going to be the same. Mm-hmm. It's just right now. And you can read the complete list on LandryFootball.com. I've got it up. But, you know, the officially right now we're at 96. I would say about the, the 96, 25 probably made good decisions. Um, last year, uh, uh, 35% of the players that declared weren't even drafted, not drafted at all. Um, it makes you wonder about what they're doing. It makes you wonder about when they're making these decisions. I think a lot of them, Scott, make the decisions before spring. Uh, mean, you know, meaning in the fall, they stop going to class. And, you know, they're not ruled ineligible until the football season's over. Uh-huh. And they, they don't enroll in school. So, I mean, they, they give themselves no options. So they're coming out because they're not eligible to go back. And it's just dumb. And some of them, that's not the case, of course. Uh, we got a lot of kids that are graduating early and transferring. That's all big news in college football. But I think you've got some are doing that. Some are getting bad advice. Some just don't want to go back to school. Some think they're going to get drafted higher. Here's what I try to explain to people. 
and, and I've done this, and I've probably explained this on radio for now 18, 19 years. And, and, and this is really important to understand because I just – you say it, and, and I don't think people listen. I know players and their families don't. They will get a grade about where they're going to go. And I often say this, and when you get around draft time, it'll, it'll become more familiar to our listeners. You can give a guy a grade, probably going to have about 18 to 24 first-round grades, okay? Folks, there's 32 picks in the first round. You get 18 to to, to 24 in a normal year first-round grades. Probably have about 48 to 54 second-round grades. Okay, let me stop there, folks. 48 to 54 second-round grades. That means a grade that would be indicative of a second-round talent. Let me say that. 48 to 50. How many second-round picks are they? 32. 32, correct? Not all of those that have got second-round grades are going in the second round. So those guys with second-round grades that I just mentioned, some of them some of them may go in the first round. A lot of them are going to go in the third round. And then, then you do the third-round grades – Probably about 65 of those. Double the amount of spots. So you're going to have players with third-round grades going into the fifth round, sixth round. I don't think people get that. They they get caught into, uh, I got a fourth-round grade. Yeah, that probably means you're going in the sixth round and seventh round yeah. more than likely. Or you could go in the fourth. It depends on the position. If you're a big guy, you got a better chance. But I think this is where the root of the problem is, is, yes, they get a grade, but if I tell, you know, 35 kids that they've got second round grades, common sense, three of you not going in the second round, <laughs> you know, so you got more, you know, got more players with commensurate grades in the round than there are spots in the round. So people think that, you know, when you give a guy a second round grade that he's going in the second round, it does not mean that. And you grade them according to a standard, but you may have guys with a little more, you know, more players at one position, a little bit more depth. So I, I in other positions, less less depth. So I have concerns about it. We're going to have probably have 35 to 40 percent of these guys that are not going to get drafted at all. And you hope we can get them into a camp. Uh, but if not, their football career is over because they can't go back to school. They're not eligible. They can't pay their school. They lost their scholarship. This is the problem. Scott, and it's a big problem, and I don't get it that why young men wouldn't put more emphasis on trying to do their schoolwork, stay in school. I don't have a problem with these guys. They're in a high first-round picks. That's a smart move, but why would you come out if you're a fourth-round grade? You probably might not get drafted to the seventh round or at all. Mm-hmm. Why not come back to school, get a degree, get closer to your degree, develop as a football player more while they're paying for you to go. I don't get it. I no, don't get it. Don't I don't it. get it. I don't get it. The wrong things, Chris. And you know that they you don't want to believe you mentioned, you mentioned it before though. They don't want to believe go to it. class and they, and, and they don't enroll and they just think that it's over. And now it's time to make millions of dollars, but that's not the reality. And those are the no, players that wind up going broke too. Once they make their money because they're not, handling the situations the right way. 
and that's a shame. That's exactly right. And mm-hmm. and it's 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 a thing that frustrates me as a college coach is someone that you encourage guys an opportunity. The chances of going back, improving your football skills. Now, look, we've got a couple of developmental leagues. Yeah, but which listen, could help. Yeah. They're far they're far behind the eight ball. They're they're too many numbers. Most of those guys, very small percentage of them are going to given even give it a chance in that league. It's very competitive. Why not increase your odds, for goodness sakes, of improving your football skills alone by going back to school and then getting your degree, for goodness sakes, so that even if you do make it in the league, you've got an education to fall back on when your playing career is over, even after you play five years in the league and you get cut. Mm-hmm. Now you've got you know, something else to go to. I don't get it. It's, it's one of the real problems. And, you know, I, I get frustrated a lot of times with the media talks about, oh, pay players, play players do this. Instead of putting the emphasis on how guys are not taking advantage of the opportunities that they do have and are given, I think everyone's really missing the boat on this. We're going to get to our state of the program coming up in just a couple of minutes, but there is some other news around the country, including uh, graduate transfer Brandon Wimbush, Chris, is going to go from Notre Dame to Central Florida, where assuming that Mackenzie Mack, excuse me, Mackenzie Milton is not 100% recovered yet from the devastating knee injury, Daryl Mack Jr. is there to compete with, with Brandon Wimbush for the starting job, but when it comes to these graduate transfers, I don't think that Brandon Wimbush makes the move unless he's got some sort of assurances from Josh Heupel that he's going to be the starting quarterback because this is his final year of eligibility. He can play right away because he's a graduate transfer. He's going to UCF to play at UCF, not to play behind Daryl Mack. Yeah, well, he's a better quarterback than Darrell Mack. He fits that offense very well. I think that his athletic ability alone kind of fits what they they want to do. So I, I do think you know he did, like all these kids do, these graduate transfers, for the most part, do their homework and, and are recruited with the idea that they've got a really good chance. Now, you know, you can have assurances that it's a great opportunity and you can come in here, but you still got to go and perform. I mean, yeah. that play well and, and, you know, it's nothing's guaranteed you at any time, anywhere. I don't care who you are in any circumstance, but I think he has a good feel for, hey, this is an opportunity to come in and compete and likely win the job. I think he's absolutely the favorite. Um, if he p- can pick things up, go in there in school and um, in in the, the spring and learn some things, obviously there's there's a great opportunity for him. And again, I think he's a really good system fit with his ath- his athletic ability, the run running the RPOs, um, you know, um, some of the option and play 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 pass off the option that they run, uh, the tempo stuff. I think that fits him very very well. And the other transfer news, former Kansas State quarterback Alex Delton is going to go to TCU. He was originally going to transfer to UTEP. Now he's going to TCU. Uh, TCU lost their starter, uh, Sean Robinson, last year. First he got hurt, and now he left to go to Missouri. And you got Mike Collins, who took over for Robinson last year. He's coming back from a leg injury. So Alex Delton, should he be eligible to play next year, might actually be Gary Patterson's starting quarterback. Yeah, he, he, he very well might. He's got a really good chance, and he's a really talented young guy um, that has some opportunity, I think, to compete there and do a really good job there for him. Um, the, the latest news, too, and I've, I will keep it updated for you on LandryFootball.com, but 
Um, Jalen Hurts has taken his visits, and you know I do think it's going to come down uh, between Maryland, Oklahoma. Um, you know, Miami's a possibility. I would be surprised if it's not one of the three uh, that would end up with his services. Really, obviously, bright young Maryland man and Miami make the most sense because he's got Enos in Miami and he's got Loxley in Maryland. Well, Oklahoma makes the most sense because they've. This is a really good system. Oh, okay, he could play. Yeah, because he's going right. to He's going to start right now. Yeah, of course. Yeah, he he he, he could play now. Um, you know, Enos is there, you know, people have asked me, uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, Loxley and Enos, there's a connection, but at Oklahoma, you've got a place that if, if they want him, mm-hmm. um, and if they, if they feel like, Hey, you can start just like we, we just talked about with Brandon, why wouldn't you go to Oklahoma? That's a better program than the other two. They've had two Heisman trophy winners. I, I mean, if you've got your choice of going to the three, I mean, it's no choice. I mean, you're going to Oklahoma and what they can do for you. Now, if the opportunity is a little bit better, meaning, you know, they've got a little bit more competition at Oklahoma. If you feel a little bit, there's no doubt he starts quicker or there's really not anybody in the way at Maryland or Miami that could beat him out. I think now, you know, in Oklahoma, Austin Kendall, who's really not a factor anyways, transferring out of there. But Oklahoma has a little bit more talent uh, in the coffers to maybe make, you know, him consider Miami or Michigan. Um, excuse me, uh, Miami or, or Maryland. But boy, I, you know, Scott, if he's got a choice, I mean, I think it's a no brainer. If they want him at Oklahoma and he feels like he's got a real opportunity to start, that 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 would be the place to go if I were him. And he could be back competing, you know, at a high level as a college guy. And then we I mean, what what can you say about development at quarterback when you take Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray back to back and they win Heisman trophies? What what a great opportunity for him. Again, if if they are offering him the opportunity um, and not just maybe considering him, you know, amongst a couple of other people that they have. So we'll see how it plays out. Another quick note, Ben Hicks is transferring from SMU to Arkansas. Um, he was with Chad Morris there. He knows that system, uh, and he's got a chance to come in. He's going to be the starter, I, uh, I think, for Arkansas in 2019. And we'll see how well he can do, um, you know, into the SEC play. But uh, we've got plenty of other transfer news. Yeah, what that, are you, you hearing? Know, we don't have time to get to. No, no, but real quick, I, of course, and, and you'll find that all this information on LandryFootball.com. And the other big name, uh, real quick, before we get to our state of the program, Tate Martin who visited West Virginia yep. and uh, apparently took a visit to Miami, Louisville. And, and Louisville is also, also up there. Miami, he's got two of his former Bishop Gorman teammates who play for the Hurricanes, and everybody is watching, you know, all these kids are on social media now. When one of these kids tweets something out, everyone's wondering, is he tweeting about Tate Martell? Is he saying that Martell's going to Miami? So everyone's watching these kids to find out what they say on social media, but that's what it is. It's West Virginia, Miami, and Louisville for Tate Martell. Yeah, it appears like that's going to be the case. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, he's a talented young man, obviously, that wasn't going to have a home at Ohio State, particularly with Justin Fields making a move there. Mm-hmm. All right, Chris, without further ado, let's get to our first edition of State of the Program. What? What's going on at your favorite school? This is State of the Program on Rush the Field. 
Each and every week, we will take one school in the top 15 of the final AP poll, and we will count our way down to number one Clemson tonight, or this week, Chris, we start with the Syracuse Orange, and I remember when they were the Syracuse Orange Men, and of course, growing up in the New York City metropolitan area, uh, Syracuse was the school of note, you know, whether it's college basketball, but you know, college football, of course, had their own history. When I was growing up it was Donovan McNabb who was leading them to to success but of course you can go back to the days of Ernie Davis Jim Brown before them the Carrier Dome arguably one of the most recognizable places in college football the Syracuse Orange have come a long way in their history yeah, and you know, Scott, what, one of the things that we want to do in this segment is not only kind of tell you where the program and we'll kind of end up where the program is now, but take you back, study the history of the programs, and I think could tell you a little bit about you know how they've gotten here and maybe where they may go into the future. And I, you know, I, I think you enjoy this particular because of your background in New York, and you know, for people who are younger age, like even middle aged people. They think of Syracuse, rightly so, as a basketball school. But, you know, before you had the Dave Bing come in and and they, they, they be, be in the 60s and become a, a basketball program, this Syracuse program started years and years ago as a power uh, in the Northeast. Um, I remember first uh, the old Archibald Stadium, which they moved out of into the aforementioned Carrier Dome that you talked about in 1980. But Archibald Stadium was built in 1907. In the early years, Syracuse became a Northeast power uh, under Coach Frank Buck O'Neill. Uh, <laughs> they went to the Rose Bowl in 1915. Uh, excuse me. They got invited to the Rose Bowl in 1915. But they didn't go to the – and I love going back to the history to explain this. They didn't go to the Rose Bowl that year because they played a West Coast game er, early in the season. You couldn't – you didn't have flights. You weren't <laughs> going to get on the train and go. It was too expensive. It's a completely different world. But, you know, it was it, it was it was a different time, but they had some really good players, guys like Doc Alexander and uh, uh, great and Vic Hansen were really good players. The it was the the program was built in the early days, the early 1900s, the 20s, and even in the 30s. The 30s, you know, college football was started in the Northeast, where you had the great programs: Yale, Harvard, Princeton. Mm-hmm. You know, in the late 1800s, then you got into the 20s. Syracuse and Cornell really started to develop powers because they started to recruit the African-American player before integration. And they had some big time players and built some big time programs. Then it, it, it once other schools to develop started to develop integration, it changed. Um, and then that led to the era of Ben Schwartzwalder, who was the greatest coach in Syracuse history. He came in 1949. But before that era, right before that, there was a coach, Ali Salam, who did a pretty good job, but more is more known for a couple of assistants that he had on his staff. One, Bud Wilkerson, Oklahoma. who played his college football at Minnesota under Bernie Bierman, got an assistant job with Coach Solom, 
and did a really good job. And then obviously, as you mentioned, went to Oklahoma and built a program. And then Duffy Doherty, Michigan State fame, uh, spent a year on that staff. But it was Ben Schwartzwalder who really took over in 49 and started to build something really good. And he recruited some big time players. Um, Jim Brown was a big part of it. Ernie Davis. Jim Brown was great. Ernie Davis was the better of the two as a college player. Jim Brown was the better pro player. Tragically, Ernie Davis um, contracted leukemia and never really played much for the Cleveland Browns. Um, but another interesting story, I know you're a baseball fan. I'm, I don't, you may be a little too young to remember this, but I'm better a lot of our listeners remember a broadcaster on baseball who oh, late 60s, 70s called Ron Luciano. Okay, Ron Luciano was a well-known baseball umpire. He was kind of one of those, you know, gregarious guys. He was an All-American tackle for Ernie Davis in the 60s. He mm. was a football <laughs> player, and he became a baseball umpire, and he was – a prominent baseball umpire. I mean, he was like well-known and how many baseball players, baseball umpires, Scott, you know, go on to become broadcasters. I mean, yeah, very you, few. you, you had some, you but he was, I'm talking yeah. national on NBC. He did that with Joe Garagiola in the group. So anyway, the program really started to develop on a bench Schwartzwalder and, and it, and it really did a good job for quite some time, but it was a Northeast program. They acted as independents. They were independents. Their biggest rival was Penn State. As time moved on, uh, they weren't recruiting quite as well because a lot of schools that had not integrated started to come in and get a lot of the players. But they really did a great job in the upstate New York area in the Northeast area recruiting with the better the best of the programs i mentioned throughout the history you know we had bud workerson and duffy doherty how about some other staff members at um at, at syracuse how about tom coughlin ever heard of him he was yeah. on frank maloney's staff who frank maloney was the guy that replaced uh, coach um Schwartzwalder. uh frank did a great job 74 to 80 um uh, Coughlin was there from 75 to 80. And there was another guy on that staff in 1977 you may have heard of by the name of Nick Saban. Um, yeah, I think I heard of that in, guy. And in, 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 in the early 80s, uh, George O'Leary was on Frank Maloney's staff. Then later on, Dick McPherson's staff. Um, Dick McPherson also had a young coach on his staff in the early 80s by the name of Jim Tressel. Um, he also had another young coach uh, uh, on his staff by the name of Tony Wise, one of the great offensive line coaches. He was uh, the line coach of the Dallas Cowboys under Jimmy Johnson that were so good. Dave Campbell, former Cowboys head coach and secondary coach, was there. Frank Maloney did a, did a nice job but he was kind of in that era where they the program were, was lacking a little bit. Now, I thought he did a really good job um, of recruiting, but the facilities weren't very good. And you want to step back a little bit. The best program, the best team that Syracuse ever had was the 59 team. They won the national championship. They went 11-0 and that year. And at, at that time, you were voted the national champion before Correct. the bowl game. But they won. They were 11-0, won the title. 
They play Texas, and people thought, oh, they're going to go to the Cotton Bowl and lose to Texas. And, and Ernie Davis led them. It was a great group of players. They had a great halfback who really was a single-wing quarterback. And Gersh Wadies is a really good group. It was the best team that Coach Schwartzwalder had. As the program kind of, you know, slipped a little bit, the one thing that I thought – that Frank Maloney did was recruit pretty well, despite the fact that they didn't have a lot of talent. He recruited guys like Craig Wolfley, Art Monk, heard of him, Joe yep. Morris, guys like that. But as things were going bad, Archibald Stadium, it held 30,000. It was it was uh, shaped in the form of a Coliseum, the Rome Roman Coliseum. And so it was a great little stadium in 1907, but it was in bad need of replacement, uh, and, it, and it just really got bit. Well, then they decided to put together something called the Carrier Dome, and it cost like $26 million to get it done. But they were able to do it, and it kind of revitalized the program, and they ended up moving on from Coach Maloney to Dick McPherson, who did a really good job brought the program to national prominence in the 80s. The 87 team was undefeated in, uh, in, in with 11-0 record. Um, they had uh, D- Don McPherson, right? Remember him? Moose Johnson, Moose Johnson the great Cowboys yeah. fullback yeah. on that team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was outstanding. Really good team. They were unbeaten. But that year, if you remember, Oklahoma and Miami finished unbeaten, finished higher in the polls. This Syracuse team played in the infamous Sugar Bowl game against Auburn. When Auburn, Pat Dye, he kicked a late field goal to tie the game. And Coach Mack was none too pleased by it. (laughs) And it uh, sent off a frenzy where all sorts of people from upstate New York started to send Pat Dye ties through the mail. (laughs) And so it was it was kind of funny how it was. But but he recruited he recruited very well. I I can remember in the 80s, there's some really good players before Mac got uh, in the early stages of of Mac being in there. Mike Ciano, uh, Scott Schwedes at receiver. Uh, Doug Marone, who we know now from Buffalo Bills fame, now coaching uh, with the Jags, really good tackle. Tim Green, Outstanding tackle, Ted Gregory. Tim Green suffering right now with some some uh, uh, physical issues. Really good players in that. Uh, Don McPherson was the first really good quarterback they did. Marcus Paul, really good players. Tommy Kane, Pat Kelly, a good tight end that they had. We talked about Moose Johnson. Um, uh, Tommy Kane that I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned. Uh, so Rob Burnett, uh, who played in the league for a long time, really had some good teams there. And Mac did a, a really nice job. And if you look through his years, I mean, he had to, he started off kind of slow, four and six and two and nine. Six and six. They wanted to run him out of there. Then, you know, and, and back in those days, they gave him a little more time, and then it paid dividends. And it wasn't until 1987 that they had the success. Won ten games again in uh, in '88. Then '89, um, uh, the the he uh, after the '89 had a pretty good season. After the '90 season, um, he went on and he took the job with the New England Patriots, which he still re- regrets to these days. Um, they. Promoted Paul Pascaloni. See now you're uh, talking to the staff, era. and then 
See now, see now you, you're getting you to where you know. See, you mentioned Paul Pasqualoni. This is these are the Syracuse teams that I grew up in the early '90s. You know, and and throughout the the, the Big East, you know, before the Big East started to break up. But we're talking about yes. This is the Donovan McNabb, the Marvin Harrison, the Dwight Freenies, Keith Bullock. These are the guys that I knew as Absolutely. the Syracuse football guys. Kadri well, Ismail, you know, right? Because I I was uh, a young assistant. At the at LSU, and well, first of all, was a coach in the Hall of Fame game against one of Coach Mack's team at Syracuse, and you know met Coach. Uh, you know, Paul was on the staff, and some really good guys on that staff. Anyway, I'm a young assistant at LSU, and I'm getting close to. I'm, I'm looking. Um, Michigan tried to hire me on their staff. I considered that, and then. I get this call one one night, uh, and it was Paul Pascaloni after he accepted the job, and he wanted me to come to Syracuse and be their recruiting coordinator and coach on field. And I was, you know, just engaging in conversations to get in the NFL in Cleveland, so I passed it over. But that's how close I came wow. to considering going to Syracuse. Um, and and you mentioned some of the players, some of the better players that we've had through, you know, Donovan McNabb. You mentioned. Marvin Harrison was great. Uh, Dwight Freeney, you mentioned Bullock, but Rob Moore, Donovan Darius, Cadre Ismail, uh, the Rockets' brother, um, mm-hmm. Kevin Johnson, Rob Conrad, to Bucky Jones, Marvin Graves, um, really good. Now, at this time in the history, they, you know, this is where I think it started to separate. The integration hurt in the the, fur, the, the early eras. Then I thought kind of they lost the rivalry to Penn State. My first remembrances of Syracuse playing um, one of the biggest games. They had a game in Archibald Stadium in October of 69 that I remember vividly. They were playing uh, an unbeaten Penn State team and had them beat. And there were two tough calls that went against Syracuse late. And then ironically, Franco Harris picked up uh, and, and this was a, a, an omen because three years later, what happened in the NFL, he picked up a different type of fumble and raced it in for a score uh, to beat Syracuse, something like 15-14, 16-14, and which would have been the biggest upset probably because Penn State was a big-time power. That team, that Penn State team, Joe Paterno, still to his dying day, thought it was a national championship team, and it was that team that Richard Nixon had declared Texas the national champion. <laughs> of course, Penn State. Penn State was uh, was unbeaten, and it was interesting. But but Syracuse people don't re- remember that. Syracuse was very close to beating them that day, and it wasn't a very good Syracuse team. They'd only won six games that year. But, but when you get into the modern era, you saw Paul do some things in recruiting and get some good players. But as you've kind of alluded to, this was more the Big East era where West Virginia and Miami became more the rivals. Penn State wasn't a rival game. Penn nope. State kind of ended up moving on. I, you know, here's something interesting that, that it's in their history. That when the when the Big East was looking to expand. As you know, the Big East was a basketball league, and it was formed by a bunch of Catholic schools that didn't, a lot of them didn't play football. So they wanted to keep it a basketball school. Syracuse obviously had great football tradition, as I mentioned. It was more of a football school in the 20s and 30s and 40s, and it wasn't until the 60s it became when Dave Bing came in, it became a basketball school. 
But there was an opportunity potentially for Syracuse long before Rutgers to move into the Big Ten. They, because they had become more basketball oriented, wanted to stay in the Big East. Yeah, of course. And Jim Be- Jim Beheim had a lot of stroke and power, so they stayed in there. But it kind of lost a little bit of luster because they didn't have a real Northeast flavor. It was a Big East, but it was kind of like, like I said, Miami. And, and it just kind of began to eat away a little bit at their recruiting base. And instead of being that power that it used to be, it became just a pretty good program that had good players. And then, of course, it, it kind of started eroded a little bit. Paul did a good job. But after 14 years, they fired him. And then came the Greg Robinson era and the Doug Marone eras that weren't all that successful. Scott Schaefer, same thing. Um, the guy that did a good job, really, I should say, was Doug Marone. Doug actually did some good things, but he was smart. He got out of it and parlayed a pretty good on-field coaching job to the Buffalo Bills job. And so he took that, and then Scott Schaefer came in and didn't work, and now we got to where we are now with Dino Babers. But if you look at the history of the program, I was thinking today to kind of describe it, Syracuse's program reminds me a lot of the Minnesota University of Minnesota program because – Minnesota, Syracuse only won one national title. I don't know how many people are familiar with this, and we may not get to Minnesota's history during our during our uh, because they didn't finish high enough. But we'll we'll talk a little bit about them right now. Minnesota was a national power before integration. Um, I mentioned Bud Wilkerson. Bud Wilkerson played for Bernie Bierman, the great Minnesota coach, and then was replaced by Murray Wormuth. They won five national titles. Uh, before integration. They got a lot of players from the South, the great black athlete. And then when integration came along, then they no longer were nearly as good because those players were going other places. And that reminds me a lot of what Syracuse has. Although, if you look at the Dick McPherson in the early stages of Paul Pascaloni, they were able to get some good players and have more success than, say, Minnesota has in their history. But we're kind of been lately to the point where they've been a program that struggled a little bit. Now this past couple of years with Dino Babers is a real positive sign, but I, I, the first wave of recruiting was pretty average for Syracuse. They're trying to rally and get a better class. They've got to recruit a better group of players. And, you know, I think Dino did a really good job uh, obviously, with Eric Dungy, they had a really good quarterback that led them and I thought was very underrated. And if I'm looking at, you know, putting together an all-time Syracuse team, I mean, you got to look at some really good ones. But I think Eric Dungy is in that group with Donovan McNabb, um, in my view, and Don McPherson is some of the great quarterbacks that they've had at Syracuse. You wonder where this program is, Scott, in terms of the identity. And if the, the ACC is, is ripe beyond Clemson. Florida State struggling. Everybody's kind of struggling. No one's really outstanding. But Syracuse is, you know, a little bit of fish out of water. They're a Northeast school competing in the ACC. Mm-hmm. And yet recruiting-wise, they're having to deal with maybe, you know, uh, still some schools that go in and maybe have a better pedigree with the modern-day player. I think that Dino's done a pretty good job, but for him to be really successful, he's going to have to recruit a different caliber player. And then if he does, 
how long can they keep them? Syracuse has not been willing to pay their coaches a whole lot of money. They've put together a pretty good deal recently with Dino Baber, so maybe they can keep him around for a while. But when you look at the history of players that have been there, now Ernie Davis was the first African-American player to ever win the Heisman Trophy. He was a great player. Jim Brown was a great player. But how about John Mackey, maybe the greatest tight end of all time? Art Monk, Hall of Fame player. Rob Moore and Marvin Harrison at receiver. Uh, they were known as the running back group for years and years because not only did they have Jim Brown and Ernie Davis, but they had Larry Zonka. Yeah. Um, they had uh, Floyd Little. Um, they've had they had a lot of good Jim Nance, not to the, the uh, not hello, not hello Jim friends, Nance. Jim Nance. Yeah, the other N-A-N-C-E, Jim Nance. Joe Morris was another recruiter, Frank Maloney in the 80s. Really good player, obviously played for the Giants. Some some really good players. How about Gary Anderson, one of the best place kickers of all time? Defensive lineman. Tim Green, a great player. Rhodes Scholar. Ted Gregory played for the Patriots for a long time. Rob Burnett, really good player. Terry Wooden, who played linebacker for Syracuse, played safety in the league. Tommy Myers had a really good pro career with the Saints. He was a guy in the late uh, 80s. But Marcus Paul and Kevin Abrams and Donovan Darius. Uh, Pat O'Neill was a really good punter. In short, Syracuse has had a really good history, an old tr- history. I I feel bad because I think that they would have survived and potentially thrived if we could have had a really true Big East football unit. In fact, um, you know, I go back and before Penn State decided to go to the Big Ten, Penn State wanted to go to the Big East. Okay. But the basketball schools didn't want Penn State to go in. See that? I don't know how many people know that. But they could have had a big and, – and, and I think that Dave Gavitt, the great commissioner of the Big East, said when the, 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 the league powers, you know, St. John's, Villanova, you know, schools that uh, didn't – Georgetown that didn't play football, big-time football, or didn't play football at all, said, we don't want them. Dave Gavitt said quietly to people – this is going to be the beginning of the end for our conference because he knew that football was going to be the big breadwinner. And at that time, had they, you know, Penn State gone, then then they could have survived because you had Penn State, you had Pitt, you had Syracuse, um, you had Boston College. Those schools were football and basketball, and they could have made the conference a little bit bigger and could have creatively done something to where you had kind of almost a combination league where, you know, you could have kept the quaintness in which I was a Big East college basketball fan, Scott. You know, in the in the late 70s, early 80s, there was nothing better than Big East basketball, I'm telling you. But, you know, it, it lost its way. And ultimately, we know that the basketball conference broke up because they didn't have any football might. And that's Correct. when they started to go get West Virginia. They started to go get Miami. And, and, and this is where I think it started to fall apart. I think Syracuse and, and Big East football would have been really good had those core schools. You add West Virginia. And then to me, if you dip, if you wanted to get Virginia Tech in there and keep them – 
that that could have been really viable in a good league. And, you know, it might have helped the Rutgers to become a little bit better, more consistent earlier in football. So anyway, I, I think the program has had a really unique history um, in, in its old history. And I, I think that the ceiling is a lot lower than it was. It's not a, a nationally prominent program. But, you know, I don't know what Dino did this year is something that is – you know, it should be expected, Scott. I don't think it's something that on a regular basis you can expect them to win nine or ten games. But I think it's a program that you can consistently go to bowl games. And then, you know, I think every few years, if you're a good developmental program, that you can probably win maybe nine games, ten years, ten games, you know, on an occasional basis. But I think the program is certainly the best. It's the most prominent it's been in a while. As I said, I think that Doug Marone had a little brief stint there, too brief uh, to get excited about. But it's the best that I've seen it since the early stages of Paul Pasqualoni. And I'm curious to see how it plays out going forward. Well, here we are, 2019, the non-conference scheduling, which we'll see Holy Cross, Liberty, Western Michigan, and Maryland. Uh, They will also take on um, Duke in the ACC crossover game. Uh, They'll play in the Atlantic Division, road games against Florida State, uh, North Carolina State. They host Pitt, Boston College, Wake Forest, and Clemson in the Carrier Dome. So a chance to uh, up Set them and really the biggest question moving forward is can Tommy DeVito taking over at quarterback put up the type of numbers that a passing quarterback like Jimmy Garoppolo did at Eastern Illinois under Dino Babers as his head coach because DeVito more of a passer whereas Dungy more of a dual threat guy that's going to be the debate going into next year can DeVito be the guy or uh, will they rely on a Tristan Jackson to take them into uh, you know this next era of Syracuse football? I think 2019 is going to be a really interesting season to prove that 2018 wasn't a fluke, Chris. Well, it's going to be a transition, and it's a tall ask for DeVito, and I think that this offense is quarterback friendly, and the up-tempo style allows you to get defenses misaligned and have some success. That's going to be the key. That's Dino's strength. Um, I had some questions about Dino, quite frankly, in that could he consistently win? I thought his team last year was a little up and down. This year they showed the consistency to, hey, not just pull the big performance in the big game, but to play at a consistent level. And, And they proved it this year that they could do it. Now, going forward, you know, can they get the program where it's a little bit more stable, where, you know, they can go in and win more games in the league, in a league where there's more winnable games. Yes. So I think if you do a good job there, you can be really competitive, but I think it's going to come down to finding their recruiting niche. And um, that's going to be the key for the sustainability of the program. And it'll be interesting to see if Dino can do it. And, And if he does do it, how long will he stay? You know, it, it, it's there's going to be some big time jobs that come open, and you know, I think if Dino continues to win, I don't think he's going to just pick up and leave for any job. But uh, let's just say if a job like USC comes open with his background out west, you know, that would be something he couldn't turn down. And if I'm Syracuse, I'm not worried about those type of programs. You can't expect a coach to stay along those lines. However, 
if I am Syracuse, I want to make sure that a, that a Dino Babers doesn't want to leave for a place like a West Virginia or a Colorado. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that you, you consider you yourself have to on have par. Your, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they may not. There may not be on with some of them, but I think they can be, and I think they have to pay like it. And I think the last contract is an indicator. I think they've got to do things on the support staff to make the program um, to where you know it has to be a upper level Big Ten job or ACC job or you know as you know you know Pac-12 job, whatever the case may be, Big 12 job for you to even consider it because. I do think with the hist- with the history and the improvements in terms of the facilities, um, I think there's an opportunity to get the program back to where it is a good job again, instead of a um, a, a program that, quite frankly, I think going in the past couple of years, people looked at as maybe the bottom rung of the ACC. Uh, I think they've definitely proven that at least under Dino's leadership that they're better than that. Well, we hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the history and trajectory of the Syracuse football program. Final ranking of 15th in the Associated Press poll to close the season. Each and every week we will feature a new school in our state of the program feature here on Rush the Field College Football Podcast. Next week, the number 14 team in the nation, the Michigan Wolverines. So we're going to talk about the major in blue next week, Chris. Now, you, the listener, can do yourself a favor. Learn what NFL teams and college programs already know by joining LandryFootball.com today. And now, as we get into the scouting season, get an even greater postseason discount. Free agency, the NFL draft, college recruiting, coaching moves, roster analysis on the college and NFL teams, all the latest inside scoop on the college and program, all that and so much more for less than a magazine subscription and now with a special postseason discount. Don't forget to catch the Landry Football Podcast every Tuesday and Thursday. This podcast, Rush the Field, each and every Wednesday. And also, sign up for the free War Room newsletter every week. Just go to LandryFootball.com, give us your email address, and you will get the inside information that's not available for publication, but delivered right to your email inbox. Just tell us where you heard about it. You heard about it right here on Rush the Field. And Chris, they can always follow you on Twitter, at LandryFootball, for even more breakdown and insight absolutely uh we've got uh, all the latest news still with a lot of co- college coaching assistant moves going on certainly that's going on around the nfl uh, recruiting information we've got going on all-star games taking place this week and next week so what's your favorite college players doing in those all-star games and getting ready for that obviously uh in the nfl with the conference championship games a lot of stuff going on around the world of football and so we'll keep you up to date on all that break down all the rosters uh make this a, a weekly uh, visit with us, an appointment uh, viewing or, or, or listening, I should say, with us because it's it's a great opportunity to keep your mind into football all year long, just like those of us that work in football, um, which you enjoy in the football season. I think you're going to enjoy it even more by learning a little bit more about the history of the game, learning a little bit more about what goes on inside these programs, the players that are going into the programs. And I tell you, Scott, it, it is it's becoming newsworthy. My college notebook that just got done uh, uh, about an hour ago for today and every day that I do, the transfer news is head spinning. It oh, is, yeah. you know, so many people are moving on. It, it will be something that, folks, 
if you don't keep track of, you're going to be completely out of the loop, and you're going you're not going to recognize half a college football with all these transfer news. So we keep you up to date with that, not only here on this podcast, uh, but certainly on LandryFootball.com. So check us out. You can follow me on Twitter at LandryFootball. And hey, if you got a question that you want Scott and us to address here, you could send it to my uh, uh, Twitter account or you know Scott's, and and we'll address it right here on the podcast for you. Exactly. You can be a part of this podcast as well alongside Chris and I. Again, he's Chris Landry, LandryFootball.com, at LandryFootball on Twitter. You can follow me, Scott Seidenberg, at Scott's on Air, S-C-O-T-T-S-O-N-A-I-R. Rush the Field can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. motorcycles i invite you to listen to life in the fast lane hosted by me alan lane aka mr black moses on life in the fast lane i'll be talking with everyone about everything motorcycles if it has two wheels and in some cases three it's fair game for us road racing drag racing stunt riding custom bikes gear motorcycle clubs everyone from pro racers brand ambassadors industry insiders and celebrities to the rider from right up the block you'll hear them all right here on life in the fast lane hosted by me alan lane aka mr black moses life in the fast lane can be found on apple Podcasts, stitcher TuneIn radio google play and radioinfluence.com 